Welcome to Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, hosted by me, Alexandria Miller. Strictly Facts teaches the history, politics, and activism of the Caribbean and connects these themes to contemporary music and popular culture. Wampum people, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, where we are still on our podcast journey sailing throughout the region and its diaspora and having some very interesting and necessary history conversations while we're at it. Not unlike the rest of the world, but particularly for our situation in the Atlantic Ocean and Caribbean Sea, disasters, especially natural disasters, are commonplace. And while we've just grazed the surface many times, particularly talking more so about hurricanes, there are quite a few disasters that have had lasting effects on our islands, our development, and of course, our people. One in particular that stands out to me as we journey to a new island in this episode is the 1948 Castries Fire on the island of St. Lucia. Joining us for a very interesting take on this history is Milt Moise, PhD candidate in the Department of English at the University of Florida. Milt, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you let the people know a little bit more about you, your connection to the Caribbean, and what you do and study? Oh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Alexandria. I really appreciate it. Um, so born, born and raised in St. Lucia, um, although the last few years I barely get home anymore, unfortunately, but that's starting to change again. In terms of my relationship with the country and its history and studying and the Caribbean in general, I went to UE. I did both of my degrees at UE, my first degrees undergraduate and graduate. I remember at the time, because my brother studied in England, he did law in England. I really wanted to go to England. So I was bitterly disappointed. UE seemed like, a, you know, a disappointing second choice. Um, but looking, but immediately after getting my degrees, I felt like this was the best thing that could have happened to me because I felt so rooted in, in my country and my region. And I feel like the opportunities that I learned there and the foundation that I was given to understand my region and then the world was the best thing that could have happened. So I'm really grateful for going to UE, UE Cavill to be more specific in Barbados. And um, and yeah, when you go there, you have to the Caribbean studies more or less. So that's that's basically what I did. And I'm, I'm extremely grateful for it. Beautiful, beautiful. Before we even dive into the fire specifically, I really find it necessary for us to kind of set the scene a bit for Castries, the city. And so even prior to the 1948 fire, which again, you know, is renowned, um, Castries had been prone to fires with several occurring since the 18th century. So major fires ravaged the city, 1796, 1805, 1813, 1927. Um, but as National Archivist Margot Thomas points out, it was particularly that 1948 fire that St. Lucia really learned the most from, especially because of the extent of its damage. So while, of course, we weren't personally there in yeah. 1948, could you describe a bit about what 1940s Castries was like prior to the fire? Well, 1940s Castries was, was an interesting place. So it was, at this point, it was a crown colony setup. Um, so a sort of British colonial outpost, a very divided along class lines. Some of the images I remember from Derek Walcott's poetry describing what Castries was like, and you had these high colonial style houses where the upper class, he would, the way he described it would kind of look down on, on people who were applying their trade and working. So it was this sort of very small but bustling colonial outpost where people, you know, were just living, living their lives and doing the best 
that they could at the time. But again, like you pointed out, the fact that there had been uh, a few fires before then may suggest that, you know, there was some sort of, there were some structural issues at play that we had not really addressed or dealt with properly, which led to probably the biggest disaster in the country's history in terms of natural disasters. So jumping to obviously now 1948, do the whole scene for us. How did the fire get started? You know, what actually happened? I think it's oftentimes described, as I said, as the most destructive of the five main yeah. castries fires. So what were even like the consequences for the city? Yeah, so apparently the people who did the forensics on it um, said that it started at this tailor's house, a guy called Adonis, which is how Seleucians would pronounce it. And it sort of spread throughout the city pretty rapidly. Um, there are all of these apocryphal stories. I, I remember listening to one account of someone said they went down to the, the firemen and they told him, there's a fire going on. What are you guys? You guys are playing dominoes. Let's get something done. But unfortunately, it was a, they, all they had was a cart. <laughs> they had like a cart and some containers of water. So it wasn't really going to do much. And then you just had this, this situation where the fire kept spreading. And even when they got the main fire out, there were all of these peripheral fires around that kept going for a while. There were all of these accounts of, of, of people helping one another. Because like I said earlier, it was a very divided society. So a lot of people who lived in the city, you had these lower class people who did work for some of the upper class people who ran businesses in the town. And obviously, some of the more well-off folks could not really afford to keep their helpers anymore. The helpers were like, well, I'm, I'll do it for free. There was a sense of spirit and community that, that emerged after that, I think. I lived in Japan for a few years. I was there during the Tohoku earthquake and the tsunami, and it was a kind of similar situation, I would have imagined, with obviously some looting, which is unfortunate. So to your point, right, the fire created this sort of massive destruction, I think, different from some of the other fires, which you could maybe point to, oh, this administrative building being destroyed or this administrative being destroyed. 1948 fire, like, ravaged most um, More, of yeah. yeah, most of the city was utterly destroyed. I went to St. Mary's College. Um, so the two, the, there were only two secondary schools in St. Lucia at the time. St. Mary's College, which is the boys' Catholic school, and St. Joseph's Convent, which is the girls' Catholic school. Both of them were in castries. The fire destroyed both of them. So I only know St. Mary's College as being sort of in a suburb called Vigi. And then the St. Joseph's Convent was placed a little bit further so the destruction of the schools were also a major, a major part of that, that I think sometimes gets, gets lost because they, they were literally the only two schools in the island at the time. So beyond this, you know, community obviously emerging after the fire, what was the national reaction? Or I guess we, technically we weren't nations at the time. So but <laughs> the, what, was, what was sort of the, the reaction? Um, how did Castries rebuild, you know, anything that kind of sets the scene for that post-48 moment? There's a really great image that I found um, when I was writing about this, of this guy sort of in the foreground. The background is just a just destruction. It's a black and white photo. And that, that photo seemed very emblematic of how people felt about it. There was, there was a general sense of despair. People lost a lot. 809 people from, all, from the official records lost their homes. So there was a lot of despair and despondency around it. But, but like I said, there was this sort of this spirit of resilience that emerged and people banding together. Fire is very interesting because 
and I got, and I'll probably get into this later when I talk about more academic responses to this because fire offers a chance to rebuild as well. Um, and there was a chance to build cast trees. I think it was Obama who said, never waste a good crisis. And I think the people at the time sort of followed that mantra to sort of rebuild cast trees in a, in a different way. I remember listening to this account of someone who moved to Barbados. And I think this is something that happens across the region when tragedies happen. Um, but in general, Castries became a much more commercial center. And a lot of the places at the heart of Castries where people live, people don't live there anymore. You just have um, shops and stores. The, the Catholic Church was restored and built back. Um, the Castries were Roman Catholic Church, the library, the Carnegie Library. But I think that was one of the major outcomes of it. The, the sort of the exodus of more residential and the sort of commercial, more commercial elements, which were always, always there, obviously, because it's a capital, but I feel like it became more pronounced. And so we see this, you know, rebuilding, but obviously to your point, it's changing the whole dynamic of what the city once was. Yeah, exactly. One thing that I found um, a little bit interesting and that I think you were sort of almost getting to um, in your response is because of the extent of the damage, right? It's a significant number of people who are affected at this point. And so one thing that I found a little bit interesting was that it sort of um, help to decrease the kind of like class distinctions because a lot of people's, you know, property and things are getting destroyed. What has been your take on that? Yeah, I remember there's a, a really interesting documentary about it. And I think that claim came up in the documentary. And I think there is some truth to that. But I'm always, I'm always a little skeptical of, of such claims because I think that these things are momentary especially back then. I mean, the, the people who had access to land, even though stuff burned down, they were able to either sell the land that they had or rebuild again. So it was sort of temporary. But I don't want to poo-poo it too much as well, because there are these moments of crisis uh, where people do come together and maybe previous relationships, previous dynamics, even though it breaks down for just a moment, there may be a little bit of a residual effect that can redound to the society. But it may be a little bit overplayed in the official accounts, as you, you tend to see in, in stories of, of disaster. If you think of um, things like Katrina and, and stuff like that, you hear these, these are narratives that are perpetuated in, in those moments. And we have to interrogate them a little bit deeper because some of those, those boundaries may have been broken down, but they may have been rebuilt as the city was rebuilt. Right. That would be a whole different conversation, but talking about class and capital um, and intergenerational wealth is a longer system that, you know, this not to, you know, decrease the impact of the fire. Right. But yeah. one fire can't take away all of that. And I remember there was a, a British there was a British warship after a while that came down to help with the rebuilding efforts. So I kind of see that as a symbol because the people who were there, some of the white solutions who were there and who didn't, we, you mentioned earlier that we weren't, it wasn't a nation in the sense that we think of it now. So these people would get the support of the British government, right? So these people would get help to rebuild. But what about the lower classes who maybe had um, smaller living areas who was helping them? Some of them had to leave and go back to the countryside where they lived or continue to hang around and hope that the people they work for got back on their, on their feet. And some of those accounts aren't as well documented, unfortunately. So it's been in that same realm of what you're saying as far as, you know, certain accounts not being fully discussed or even captured. It's been 74 years um, since the fire. So how has it been remembered? And 
maybe not in the academic yet. We'll get that yeah, just sort yeah. of like in a community sense. How has it been remembered? Um, how do you think St. Lucia and St. Lucians were as a result transformed? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that, how would I, how would I put this? It's always in the in the back of St. Lucian's memories. It, it's something that that is there, but it's not spoken about as much. It's memorialized in the poetry and, and the fiction um, and the documentary that I mentioned, which was a 50th, I think it came out in 1998. So it's a 50th anniversary sort of looking back um, and the oral accounts of all the people who were there you know, and it often takes on a spiritual tinge when you, when you listen to how people talk about it, mostly. An opportunity for rebirth, um, an opportunity for sort of reflection, a sort of reconsideration of, of our history and where we are, where we came from, and where we are going, that sort of thing. But it's um, unlike, I think, some disasters that have been memorialized in, in physical, tangible ways, it hasn't really been around the country as much in terms of, I can't think of a, of a statue or plaque or anything like that. It's been reflected more in the art and now with this documentary that's a bit old, that visual medium. So as we were sort of alluding to throughout this episode, um, it has been definitely showcased, highlighted in that more creative, um, more creative. and academic sense, right? I think one thing that's I've always found so beautiful about the way our histories can be told and the ways to look at history, not even just Caribbean history, but one thing I found so interesting about ways to just learn histories, it's not always in your, you know, sit down textbook, whatever way, right? You can learn about history through art, through culture, through song, et cetera. And so I'm always looking for those creative works that just, you know, further showcase our history in different ways. And I always ask guests to share these creative works um, on the theme of, of each episode. And so to your, you know, glory, and I'll definitely link it in our show notes, you've actually written, I think, a really great article, in my opinion, on two oh, St. Lucian pieces, oh, of course, on two St. Lucian pieces, a novel or a novella, rather, and a poem that discuss the fire and its impact on St. Lucia. So would you mind sharing them, of course, and then sort of what you find most interesting about the differences, how they're reflecting on the impact of the fire, and of course, any other examples that come to mind? Before I get that, and thanks for your kind words, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of historian Hayden White. He's, he's one thinker that I've, I've done a little research on and used him to help my arguments. And he talks about history as a form of, as a narrative, right? As a story we tell ourselves. And, and the interconnection between history and literature is so rich. And there are times historians will look at the literature to kind of get a sense of what people thought at the time. And vice versa, as the literary scholars, we would look at the history to inform whatever it is that we're talking about. So... I did history at A-level. My brother wanted to be a historian. He's now a judge. <laughs> so history is something that's really deep in my family and something we consider very much. And um, the two works in question are, obviously, Derek Walker's poem, A City's Death by Fire, and Garfson Omer's Another Time, Another Place. Derek Walker's poem, it's performed all over the country. I was a secondary school teacher for a while in St. Lucia. We'd have dramatic poetry readings, and they would have to recite that poem so it's a poem that everybody knows. One of the arguments I make is that it was our first national poem. It's just a poem that epitomizes the resiliency of, of solutions, um, the ability to build back and band together. And 
it, it, it's announced, apart from that, it announced their Walker to the world. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just this sort of incipient, very important touchstone. And every country has poems or works of art like that. And this is ours. And it was written in 1948, really just after the fire. And you can feel it when you read it. It's very visceral. And you can imagine this young man, Derek Walcott at the time, he was born in 1932, teenager walking through, because he lived in Castries. He lived there. So he saw it first and he had to experience just the smell of the smoke and the ash and that the, the devastation. And then 20 years later, in 1968, you have Garson Omer, who he's writing about a bunch of other things, but he mentions the fire. It, it occupies a really critical place in his um, novella. But his version of it is completely different to Walcott's. Like Walcott's is, oh, this is really horrible. There's an existential sort of trying to grapple with what happened. But at the end, it's sort of, this is an opportunity for rebirth and renewal, and we will do this. So you understand why it would become the sort of totemic, really important poem to St. Lucian's. Whereas in the Goths and Uma novella, it's the fire is like, this place is rotten to the core. <laughs> Everyone is aping colonial mannerisms. Class is, is, is just this festering wound in the society. And this fire is almost like a condemnation. Burn it all down. He, so he has a very, very different approach to this. Coincidentally, the protagonist who's enjoying it is called Derek. I think there's a direct, he's addressing Walker directly. And one of the things I lament, and I talk about it in my piece, is that this version of it, of the, of, the, of the fire, no one talks about it. Barely anyone ever reads Goff St. Omer. Um, he had a little bit of revival recently that myself and a friend of mine who's a scholar of his, she especially has kind of, you know, done a lot to redeem his, his reputation because I think his, his ideas are pretty important too. So yeah, you have these sort of dueling representations of the fire and I think it's important to consider both because when we sort of create national histories, there may be a tendency to include only the positive. Uh, and the country that we both work in <laughs> and live in has a very, very tenuous relationship with that. But if we're going to actually grapple with conceptualizing this complicated idea of, of the nation and what the nation means, then we do have to have a sort of more stereoscopic perspective of national disasters and how we respond to it and who was deeply affected by it and how were they affected. And I think just considering these two things in relationship to one another is really, really, really useful. Um, and I try to get people to read the St. Oman novel, even though he can be a pretty brutal, right? <laughs> He's can be pretty harsh. But if you put if you pair them as a dichotomy, as a dichotomy, I think useful things arise from that. You make um some really great points on trauma that I think, you know, especially in the face of disaster, how we overcome them and obviously at to your earlier point um Walcott and St. Omer do this in very different ways to an extent so what are your thoughts on trauma and how it shows up post um disaster but also how they how it shows up differently in both of the pieces yeah that's a really good that's a really good question you with, with regards to the Walcott poem you can you can feel the trauma of the persona this individual walking through and like I said, grapples with things in a very existential way, but religion comes in. Um, a spirituality comes in there and spirituality is used to sort of grapple with trauma and offer a, a solution to the trauma and a larger purpose. And that's not uncommon. A lot of us as people, spirituality and a belief in a higher power help us through these really difficult moments. 
Whereas in the sense Oma piece, it's an unfeeling, indifferent world in, in, in a way, in a sense. And he's condemning all of these people. And he's kind of looking at the, at the way that they are processing it as, as rather flawed, at least on the surface. But the fact that he believes that this is almost like a sort of divine intervention that the city is burning down, it kind of complicates his, his message a little bit. Um, and like I said earlier, I've, I went through a natural disaster when I lived in, in Japan. So I saw how people process that national trauma and I was part of that. Um, so I was able to compare this very different culture um, to my own culture. And I think of earthquakes in Haiti and how people respond and how the world looks at it and responds versus how they responded to Japan. Um, and the trauma is something I realized and I'm, I, I'm interested in because in like everything that I've written academically, it, it's come up <laughs> apart from my dissertation that I'm working on. So it's, it's really fascinating to me how people conceptualize it and write about it to write about trauma in the form of a sonnet. A sonnet is a very rigid poetic style. You must have this structure and this structure. It's actually unusual because most people think trauma happens in a very haphazard circular way and using a very strict form to represent it is just strange. Modern representations of trauma are a little bit more open, a little bit more fluid. But again, I think Derek Walker was announcing himself on the world stage using the classic English form. So there's there's that going on there. And there's the post-colonial trauma aspect to these two works of, of art that underpins them both. And Derek Walker is more positive about our maybe being able to break away from that. I think we're still trying to break away from that. And St. Omer has a much more negative perception. I think he's saying we're still, we're not ready yet. We're, we're, we're busy aping the mannerisms and not really ready to look into the mirror and evaluate ourselves. And that's something that as Caribbean people, no matter how different we, th- we think we are, we're still grappling with, the, with our own fire. Our, our fire, our national event is colonialism. And I think trying to process our trauma um, in ways that offer healing and in- inclusivity, I think, is, is, where we should, is what we should be doing. But too often, people stoke the fires, sorry to use belabor the fire metaphor, <laughs> in, in, in negative ways in terms of politics and religion and stuff like that. That is, I think, probably a beautiful point to end on. <laughs> I definitely do agree that it's a, a very apt metaphor that colonialism as a fire that we, I mean, it would take us into a different yeah. conversation largely, but even with Haiti, most recent events, et cetera, these are issues that we're constantly going through. And no matter how many centuries or in for other countries, decades, certain islands have been independent um, and not all of the islands are independent, of course, but yeah. It's something that we still, imperialism and colonialism, neocolonialism is ongoing. And so despite the rebirth that certain fires have brought, like the 1948 Castries fires, um, there are continual problems that we are still facing, especially as a colonized people and quote unquote, formally colonized, depending yeah. on who you're talking to. Yeah, I like, I like your introduction of neocolonialism there. Because I think neocolonialism is sort of, it lingers in very insidious ways. Um, and I have these discussions with, with friends and people who are concerned about these things in terms of tourism and how tourism just reproduces those dynamics, um, that, that sort of middle passage and the flows of currency and 
where things go and who controls the means of production and stuff like that. Uh, and even the way in which we conceptualize our nations and how we should provide employment for most people. They are very weighty, fraud conversations that we need to have. Um, I think post the, the fire for a long time, agriculture was the dominant economic activity in my country. And that's changed. Uh, with, we've gone all into tourism um, for better or for worse. And with COVID and tourism being not a thing for a little while, people are still feeling it. So again, all of these things are legacies that still linger, that we're still trying to figure out what we're going to do about them. Well, thank you. This was a great episode. I really enjoyed learning more about St. Lucia. I will obviously also, as I think I said, link your article um, in our Strictly Facts syllabus. I think it's literally one that was a pleasure to read and just... Thank you so much. It's very nice of you to say. (laughs) Of course, and just really helped set the scene for um, understanding how Walcott and St. Omar are doing two very different things with kind of one, (laughs) you know one subject as the fire. So as I said, thank you, Milt, for joining. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into this episode. And we hope you enjoyed it. Little more, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Strictly Facts. Visit strictlyfactspodcast.com for more information from each episode. Follow us at Strictly Facts Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at Strictly Facts PD on Twitter.